Welcome to the Faith Life Fellowship Podcast with Dr. Scott Forrest. In today's message, Dr. Forrest presents part one of his teaching, Signs. to remember a song from 1971 called Signs. I'll give you a little rendition. The first verse goes like this. Signs says, long-haired, freaky people need not apply. Then the first line of the chorus goes, signs, signs everywhere, signs. Anyway, it's kind of a rebellious song. But I'm glad to see there's other people here old enough to remember that song. The name of the band, by the way, was the Five Man Electric Band. Anyway, so I've been thinking about that song as I've been preparing my notes for this series. If you haven't figured it out yet, uh, we're going to do a series on signs, amen? And signs have been used for centuries and have evolved over the years to help us in a variety of ways. They inform us of upcoming events. They help us find our way to a particular destination. They help our car from not hitting other cars while driving to that destination. (laughs) They tell us about a particular product we might be interested in. They warn us that we're trespassing other people's property or entering an area we are not authorized to enter. Amen. And the list goes on. But much of what I'm going to share in this series will be rooted in the Gospel of John, and in particular, what many theologians call the seven signs of the book of John. Sounds like a movie title, doesn't it? Although the other three Gospels contain lots of signs, wonders, and miracles that Jesus performed in His earthly ministry, the book of John places particular emphasis on only seven which occur from chapter 2 through chapter 11. And if you read near the end of his gospel, the Apostle John makes this clear. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. John says here, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. So he says, I didn't pick many signs, but the signs that I did pick point people to Jesus. Amen? And the reason that the seven signs take up such a major portion of the book of John is is obvious when you find out what these signs are and what they say about the one who performed these signs. One theologian put it this way, it's the part of the gospel where the Word reveals Himself to the world and to His own. Amen. That's awesome, isn't it? So here are the seven signs of the book of John in the order in which they appear in John's gospel. Number one, changing water to wine. That's John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. Number two, healing the nobleman's son, John chapter 4, verse 46 through 54. Number three, 
healing the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. John chapter 5, 1 through 18. Feeding the 5,000. John chapter 6, 1 through 14. Walking on water. John 6, 15 through 25. Healing a man born blind. John chapter 9, 1 through 41. And 7, raising Lazarus from the dead. John chapter 11, verse 1 through 46. Amen. So we're going to use these seven signs as an outline for the series, and then we'll cap it off with a discussion of signs, wonders, and miracles, how they're all related and why they're essential to preaching the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of power that Jesus preached, that Paul preached, that the apostles preached, and that we should preach. Amen? So let's start with number one on our list of seven signs. And keep in mind that many of these signs involve Scripture passages that are chalked full of signs. Call them signs within signs. Not just the ones that are listed on the outline. This is especially true of sign number one on our list. Changing water into wine. Oh, there's so much here. I can't even begin to tap into it, but I'm going to try. Amen. So let's start by reading John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. I'll make a few comments along the way, but I'll save the majority of my comments till after we read the whole passage. John chapter 2, verse 1 through 11 in the New King James Version. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. So we haven't even got past the first verse, and I see a sign already. You know, the third day of the week was Tuesday, but I don't think it's a random piece of information. I also don't think that Tuesday is the sign that's being highlighted here. I'll ask you the rhetorical question. So what else happened on the third day? Well, Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day, wasn't he? And some of the most important things that are now available to us come as a result of his resurrection and are seen in sign form in this amazing passage. Verse 2. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. That's my paraphrase. Evidently, it was a Jewish faux pas to run out of anything at a wedding, especially the wine. Verse 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. It's almost like Jesus was blowing her off, but he wasn't. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. How many know Mary was not taking no for an answer? But I want you to know that Jesus was very aware of the timeline of heaven. He knew that when he started his miracle ministry, it would set him on a timeline toward his appointed hour. The day that he would give his life for the whole world. Nevertheless, 
He adjusted the timeline of heaven out of respect for his mother and to save the host of the wedding from an embarrassing situation. Verse 6. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water and they fill them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine. And when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. Verse 11. Listen to the words here. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Yes, I got an amen from my granddaughter Luna. Hallelujah. Let me read it to you again. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Amen. The first thing I want to point out is something we find in this last verse here. This beginning of signs Jesus did. Now the word translated here as signs in the New King James is translated as miracles in the King James and many other versions. Also miraculous signs. And there's a reason for that, and we'll get into that as we go. So join me in a brief word study of the Greek word that is translated here as signs. It is the Greek word, semion, semion. And it means a miracle, a sign, a wonder, or a token. It seems like any of these could apply in this situation, but just bear with me. It is translated 50 times in the New Testament as sign, 23 times as miracle, three times as wonder, and one times as token. That says to me that 50 times you're using this Greek word to emphasize something spectacular that is done, and the emphasis is on the sign, that is, Who does the miracle or the wonder point you to? What does the miracle or the wonder point you to? It points you to Jesus and lets you know that he's not an ordinary man. He is sent to you by God. Amen. That, in a nutshell, is the purpose of signs. So without getting too bogged down in definitions, I I don't want to minimize the fact that there was definitely a miracle performed when Jesus changed water to wine. I mean, he changed the chemical composition of the water into fermented, aged, and evidently tasty wine. But I believe the translators got it right here when they translated it as a sign because this miracle was itself a sign. It was a sign to the people of that wedding that the one who performed the miracle was sent to them by God. I'm repeating myself, but it's worth repeating. 
And as we go through these seven signs of the book of John, we're going to see that the emphasis is on the signs. Because signs point people to Jesus, who is the miracle worker, who is the wonder worker. Amen. And as we dig further into this story, you're going to see that there are more signs embedded in this story that tell the wedding guests and that tell us that Jesus came to bring some pretty wonderful things into the world. Stay with me. Math will be done. If you don't follow the math, trust me. I've got degrees in this stuff. All right, so verse 6 in the New King James Version says there were six water pots of stone containing 20 to 30 gallons of water apiece. But before I do the math, I want to refer you back to the King James because I did all my math with the King James. You know, the authorized version. Which is a little bit more precise. King James says the pots contain two to three firkins apiece. First time I read that, I said, what the heck is a firkin? Well, Flirty Bernie, I'm firkin for the Lord today. You know? I don't think that's it. A firkin was an old English unit of volume, which equals nine gallons under the English system of measurement. So if you do the math, assuming there were three pots which contained two firkins, or 18 gallons, and three pots which contained three firkins, or 27 gallons, and figuring in a water density of 8.34 pounds per gallon, that means these water pots weighed anywhere from between 150 and 225 pounds, not counting the weight of the stone pots themselves. So these are big water pots. What I want you to see before we're done with this is that Jesus, with this miracle, is painting a picture or performing a sign that will illustrate the new birth and the baptism of the Holy Spirit to these wedding guests and to those of us who would one day read this story. All right, now take a breath and stay with me. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, We have this treasure, the treasure of the Spirit of God, in earthen vessels. And verse 6 declares that these were six stone water pots. But you know something about the stone pots of those day? They were really earthen clay baked and made hard, so it was like stone. So these were earthen vessels. And 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. So I believe they are perfect types of human beings. These six water pots of stone. You can also figure that the number six is the biblical number of man. There's another clue that there's some symbology and some signs going on here. All right, so, but just like the empty stone pots, we are empty earthen vessels without the living water of God. Isn't that right? But when you say yes to Jesus, God deposits something very valuable on the inside of you, 
a treasure that is the living water that only comes from God the Father. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. He gets a prophetic picture of this new birth and this baptism of the Holy Spirit experience 700 years before it was loosed on planet earth. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2 to 3, King James Version. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. Listen to this. Therefore, with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. When you say yes to Jesus, when you get born again, God deposits a well of salvation on the inside of you, but He doesn't want you to stop there, amen? Listen, Matthew 3.11, Mark 1.8, Luke 3.16, John 1.33, all declare that John the Baptist went out there and said this, I come to baptize you with water for the remission of sins, but the one who comes after me, who is much mightier than me, he comes to baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Hallelujah. Whoo, I love that. I can just see him saying that. Eating bugs and wearing camel skin. So immediately after you're saved, after you're born again, you should ask Jesus to fill you with the Holy Ghost. Amen? I remember when I prayed for my wife to get born again. I said, do you want to make Jesus the Lord of your life? And she said with tears in her eyes, she said, yes. And I went for the gusto. I said, do you want to be filled with the Holy Ghost? Do you want to speak with other tongues? And she said, I want all he has for me. And she got filled with the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Glory to God. It's okay. It's love waves coming toward pop pop. It's going to be all right, baby. We're getting to the good part. So after you're filled with wells of salvation, Jesus changes the water in your well into wine. Which is another old way of saying he stirs up or energizes the living water in such a way that it cannot be contained by the vessel anymore. It has to come out. When this happens, that well becomes a powerful geyser, a spring that begins to bubble up and flow out of you. Jesus said as much. John chapter 7 verse 38. Just trust me, look it up. Jesus said, he that believes on me, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Amen. Now, his spirit begins to affect more than just you. It begins to affect all those around you and all those who you come in contact with. Remember, Jesus told the servants to draw out now. Take the wine to the host or the master of the feast. And so one of his jobs was to taste the wine to make sure it was fit for consumption. Amen? Then he would order it to be distributed to the rest of the guests at the wedding. When you get filled with the Holy Spirit, what's in you begins to come out of you so that all those around you can taste and see that the Lord is good, like good wine. Amen? Psalm 34, verse 8. 
One more thing to consider before we leave this wonderful story. Consider the fact that Jesus didn't just barely meet the needs of this wedding host and all the guests who were out of wine. He didn't just scrape by with a mini miracle. So let's do some more math and see see what he really did. So using the assumptions that we used earlier, we come up with a total of 135 gallons of wine that were produced from the water in these pots. That's a lot of wine. But let me make it real. Let me quantify that. That equates to a staggering 675 standard bottles of wine. Now, we know they didn't use bottles back then, but it gives you an idea of the amount of wine that we're talking about. If you had 100 guests at this wedding, every guest could get six bottles of wine. Now, I don't think Jesus is in the mode of contributing to public drunkenness. I think he's more in the mode of, listen, when I provide, when I meet a need, I meet it abundantly. I meet it with overflow. I meet it with more than you could ever need and enough to distribute others who may be in need. This is a picture of Jesus, our provider. So these signs that we've talked about thus far talk about Jesus came to get you born again. He came to get you filled with the Spirit. And He came to meet your needs, amen, abundantly, with overflow, ridiculous. All right, let's press on to sign number two on our list. Healing the nobleman's son. We'll begin by reading John chapter 4, verse 46 through 54 in the New King James Version. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Well, the word there translated as signs is the same Greek word we've been talking about, semion. It means signs, miracles, wonders, things of that nature. And the word translated here as wonders is from a Greek word, teros, which means wonders. <laughs> you know, one commentary I said that a wonder in this sense of the word was something that was so out of the ordinary that people took notice of it and were drawn to it. And I confess to you that I don't have a firm grasp on what a wonder is, except to say it causes people to say things like this. I wonder how he did that. Like when Jesus walked on water, which we'll get to later. Or I wonder what that was. Like when God the Father said in an audible voice, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Some said it was the voice of God. Some said it was thunder. Some said we don't know what it was. It was a wonder. Amen. Hallelujah. All right. On another note, I'm not so sure that Jesus was being entirely negative when he said people wouldn't believe unless they saw signs and wonders. 
I think he was acknowledging the fact that signs, wonders, and miracles were going to be necessary in order for people to believe that he was Lord of all. Verse 49. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. So, you know, he just kind of cut through the theological arguments. He probably didn't even understand what Jesus was saying when he said, you know, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And so he just cut to the chase. If you don't come down, my son's going to die. He was desperate. Verse 50, Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. Now, let's talk about this nobleman for just a few minutes. We don't know whether he was Jew or Gentile, Roman or the court of Herod, but he was some kind of noble position, well-respected, probably very wealthy, owned a lot of land. And that should tell you that he probably spent some money trying to get his son healed and nothing worked, and now he's desperate, and he's coming to Jesus probably reluctantly and saying, Jesus, you're my last hope. I want you to come to my son so that he will live. And so let me read verse 50. Once again, Jesus said to him, go your way. Your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. This is the first clue that we received that this man was well on his way to receiving a miracle because he believed the word of Jesus. Amen? He believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he headed home, I believe, expecting to find his son alive. Verse 51. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives, and he himself believed, and listen to this, and his whole household. I believe this aspect of the story makes it clear to the nobleman or made it clear to the nobleman that the words that came out of Jesus' mouth carried an authority that was recognized in the spirit realm. They were spoken from a distance, but they were not bound by distance. For this reason, he must have known at some level that although Jesus was human, he was no ordinary human. He had to have come from another realm, a heavenly realm. He was Lord. He was Savior. He was Messiah. He knew it, and he believed. Listen to verse 54. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Again, that word sign is Simeon, the same word. It means a sign. I want you to ponder a few things. Now we've got the first sign, water to wine, the second sign, the nobleman's son healed, and there's a couple of things I want to bring out here before we wrap this thing up. In the first sign, something was requested from a mother. In the second sign, something was requested from a father. Jesus 
doesn't care whether you're male or female, father or mother. He's interested in meeting your needs. Here's another thing. When Jesus made the wine in the first sign, he made wine instantly, which normally takes a long process to make, right? You got to ferment it. You got to age it. You got to bottle it or whatever they did back then. And it's a process of time. But Jesus made aged, tasty wine instantly, which tells me he was demonstrating that he was Lord over time. Do you see that? And there in this second one, in this second sign, he spoke a word over a distance. And the distance didn't matter. He spoke a word to the nobleman, and distance or space was not an issue. Therefore, he was Lord over space. So he's Lord over space in the second sign. He's Lord over time in the first sign. So he's Lord over space-time, and he's Lord over the universe and all of space-time, as large and as far as the far-flung galaxies and the universe that we know. He is Lord of it all. So once again, the word here for sign is the Greek word semion, which means signs, miracles, wonders. And once again, I believe the translators got it right in the New King James because as wonderful as it was that the nobleman's son was healed, it was even more wonderful that it resulted in his whole household coming to Jesus. Do you see that? It was a powerful sign that pointed the rest of his family to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Amen and amen. Hallelujah. Glory to God. That's about enough. Some of you tried to hang with me on the math and you haven't recovered yet. There will be no more math next week when we pick it up with sign number three on our list of seven signs in the book of John. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed part one of Dr. Forrest's message, Signs. If you're in the Wilmington area and are looking for a place to worship, come join us on Sunday at 10 a.m. for coffee and fellowship and 10.30 for worship and service. If you would like to learn more about us and hear more of Dr. Forrest's teachings, visit our website at gofaithlife.com. Also, visit and like our Facebook page at Faith Life Wilmington.